This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. It's been a little while since I recorded. I needed a month off, and so I took a month off. But I didn't record any episodes, so I didn't say that I was taking a month off. I guess you probably assumed that. So I'm back. I'm back recording this session with Rachel Allen. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about arousal template and then we're going to go into purity culture and rape culture and how that impacts arousal template and we'll tie it all together and it'll be a great discussion yes so let's start by just identifying i don't know if i've done a podcast talking about arousal template so let's kind of break down what we're talking about when we talk about arousal template yeah so patrick Carnes kind of I don't know, fathered this idea in his book. I think it was originally in Betrayal Bond mm-hmm. and then shifted to Facing the Shadow, which is his workbook. But it's a pretty interesting idea where our arousal is tied to like both sexual and non-sexual experiences, positive and negative, that kind of build our arousal or desire template. Mm -hmm. And specifically when Patrick Carnes is talking about it, he's talking about sexual arousal. I have found it really, really helpful to look at how the body arouses, how we hit that arousal state physically in the body. Or another word like activated. Activated. Yeah. Right. It's that heightening of senses. It may be anxious. It may be desire, but it's that heightening focusing of the senses. Mm -hmm. And for me, I find that very helpful when explaining to clients because sexual arousal kind of gets dumped into this myriad of stuff. And sometimes what, when we're experiencing arousal, it's not necessarily sexual arousal, but it can get really confusing. Mm -hmm. And it's the things that we like, the things that we don't like, the things that we that turn us on, the things that make us angry, the things that make us anxious, the things that scare us a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that often gets funneled into how we pick partners, how we have sex, how we what we desire sexually, mm-hmm. our sexual fantasies. And so, and all of those things are attached to experiences and rules and that kind of like messaging messaging all of those things you know start to form and create the things that are arousing to us Uh and typically i mean when we're talking about sexual arousal these aren't starting at puberty right these are starting really kind of at birth yeah i mean all of them are starting like in our early experiences through you know our puberty development into adulthood. Yeah. I mean, there's even some enough research that we could theorize that it's also happening in, in utero, right? Mm -hmm. Our, what our mother is experiencing around the world being dangerous or the world and her arousal template, her stress can create some of that template Mm -hmm. before we even hit the air, so to speak. Right. Right. But you also think about, or, and not, but You also think about today, all of these big gender reveals that people are doing, you know, I mean, that's a huge way to start out 
like in this binary of boy, girl, blue, pink. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and all that goes with that, like we're starting to like as adults in this child's life, we're having a profound impact on the messaging that they're getting the socialized, what we feel like is appropriate or inappropriate. We're doing that. Right. I mean, I just had literally this morning, I had a conversation with my five-year-old who said pink is a girl color. And as an artist, I'm like, no, there's no such thing as like girl and boy colors. Like mm -hmm. colors are just what the world creates for us to enjoy. And she was like, oh, oh yeah. Okay. So boys can enjoy pink. I was like, yes. And you can enjoy blue. She was like, yeah, because blue is mom's favorite color. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, blue is mom's favorite color. Mine too. And so I know I love blue. It's so soothing, but right. So like we have gendered colors in a way and really gendered a lot of things in a way mm -hmm. that we, by the time our child is one, they're already picking up on those signals. Yes. And even if we're trying to hold back some of that gendered messages that they'll get, you know, we can do that until they start going outside of our home. Right. Kindergarten. They're going to pick it up from other kids who are telling them, you know, if they're a little boy who has enjoyed pink, they're going to be like, you can't do that. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I just had a friend experience this with her little boy who picked out a unicorn backpack because mm -hmm. he's obsessed with unicorns and he went to school and they were like, that's a girl's backpack. And he's like, I don't understand. Like she, he was like, I don't understand why you're being so mean to me. Right. And you know, the mom was like, one, I think it's ridiculous that the insults that mm -hmm. six-year-olds can give oh, each other yeah. is that's a girl. That For a boy, the worst thing you could be called is, is a, a girl. girl. But also just the fact that, I mean, this kid just adores unicorns, right? And so it's one of those things where it's like, right, but this is something that he loves. Yeah. And so why are we... And why are unicorns gendered? Right. And especially with some of the cartoons and stuff that we have out now, right? Where you have some of the very like masculine unicorns in a role. I'm, I think it's like Shrek, I think maybe that has a very like male unicorn and he's always like, it's okay. And uh -huh. even when James in the giant peach has the ladybug, is it James in the giant peach or no, it's bug's life, a bug's mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. The ladybug is a very masculine character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I just think there's like, we gender things that don't make sense. Right. And so, but our kids are picking up on those things and that becomes part of our arousal template. Mm -hmm. And we as children had those things probably more so than like the generation that's being raised now had these gen gender roles mm -hmm. and stuff picked very early on. For yes. Us. Yes. I mean, some of the toy stores, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, like started like degendering the toy aisles. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned that Toys R Us refused to do that. And basically, I mean, Toys R Us, their big box stores are no longer, right. at least in most states. Yeah. I don't think that they have a physical store anymore. I'm not even sure that Toys R Us has an online presence anymore. Mm. Like, I think that they're just done. I could be wrong, but I mm -hmm. think that they're just done. But yeah, that was one of the like shifts that Toys R Us really struggled to make is the toys themselves were gendered and my generation was like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And with the convenience of online and things like that, like it really crumbled for them. 
it is a very interesting thing when you start to look at because you and I are social workers. And so we kind of come from this lens of like the system and the individual where mm -hmm. psychology tends to be the individual and mm -hmm. sociology tends to be the system. Right. Social work is this blend of like, Hey, maybe we should look at all of this. Right. Right. In social um, work, we call it kind of the macro level, which would be the system or the culture and then the micro level, which is the individual. Yes. Then and we also talk about the mezzo, which is kind of a in between, right? Like maybe it's a local community and not the uh, larger structure that the local community is under. Right. And so, yeah, when you're talking about, right, you're talking about individual communities, maybe subculture or counterculture, you're talking about these things that are within the culture structure but smaller mm -hmm. and all of that plays a role in arousal templates, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a big difference. So we, it's very interesting. Even if you look historically at music, when music was just on radio and it was just, there were non visuals or it was just like album co covers, our view of musicians was a lot more diverse than when uh, MTV started playing music videos. Mm -hmm. And when MTV started playing music videos, we got some very specific body types with music. And we not only did musicians have to be really good musicians, they also had to have a lot of sex appeal. And we watched that shift with TV and the rise of music videos. And that has happened culturally, again, through the years, with social media, with uh -huh. right, like what women are supposed to look like, what men are supposed to look like. Porn has a huge role in that, right? right. Like we can see in early porn in the, like the sixties and seventies that were coming out on video, women's bodies were actually a lot more natural mm -hmm. and had a lot more body hair. Mm -hmm. And as that curves, curves, weight, you know, yeah, right. Like, um, and as that has continued and our society has shifted and porn has become more prominent we've seen a lot less body hair, mm -hmm. a lot less cellulite, a lot, right? Like everything is brighter and more airbrushed. And though I don't think the porn industry as a whole has been beneficial to anybody, just uh -huh. watching the shift in that of making women younger, of making women less hairy, of making mm -hmm. women more airbrushed, of skinnier, whatever, that shifted our arousal template yes. as a culture. Yes. I remember when I was young, probably I was maybe, I want to say 13 or 14 MTV's out. And I had heard the term sexy before. Like I knew that that was a word and what it meant. I knew that mm -hmm. I didn't know personally. Right. And I'm watching MTV and Michael Hutchinson from in excess is mm -hmm. singing a song and i was like oh that's sexy mm -hmm. like that was like it hit me in a way where like that was sexy to me mm -hmm. right all of a sudden i was like oh right. i get it like that's sexy mm -hmm. and and again it's one of the like again that was came from mtv his moves right i was just like <laughs> drawn in sucked in i might have been 15 16 but I think I was 13, 14. I don't know. I'd have to go back and compare dates with songs that came out. So, yeah. And I think about that too, because I was in that 
weird millennial space where we kind of fit into Gen X, but we kind of don't fit into Gen X and mm-hmm. we don't really fit in with the rest of millennials either. Like we were in that like uh-huh. shift that right. you know, time and the shift from like very alternative grunge era into this hyper pop right. of like Britney and Christina, the very, very low jeans, the, you know, before that women were like, I mean, it was grungy, right? Like women wore boy shirts and baggy pants Mm -hmm. and, or you had like Janet Jackson, right? That still, she dressed differently than Britney. Right. And so the, the shift in that in culture and what that meant for girls developing at that time Mm -hmm. was almost like shocking. Right. For me, because I was the girl that was developing in that time. And like what was seen as appropriate or sexy or good also young, right? We Uh went from kind of adults being sexy. And like, I'm, I, I'm really thinking about in the eighties, you had a lot, Madonna was young, but Madonna was still a little older than like Britney was 14 I think, when she started and like Madonna was a little bit older, still sexy, still had that. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of controversy around yes, that. Like yes. she was really pushing that. Right. And then, you know, like Britney's first album, she's completely like bra top and uh-huh. super, super low pants. Yeah. And that was sold as pure, uh-huh. right? Like she was a pure musician and such a weird like age yeah. template shift to for arousal templates yeah. where we started seeing like, attraction became younger and younger. I feel like there was mine and yours. One of our favorite podcasts is you're wrong about. Yes. I feel like there was a you're wrong about episode. I can't remember which artist it was, but it was during that time period. And, you know, they were saying, I mean, it made them very uncomfortable with their body, but they were being pushed to wear lower waist jeans, Mm -hmm. higher crop tops, like before they were mature to do that before they like, again, they're like, you know, young or mid adolescent, which is young, right. To be sexualized in that way. Right. And we have seen kind of a pushback from that, like Uh Billie Eilish, right. Really pushed hard against Mm -hmm. that in her Mm -hmm. music career. And I have a lot of respect for that. Right. And Billy kind of talks about her development being hijacked by born and hijacked by the industry, which again, I think is brilliant that she's talking about that. She's speaking about that. And Alicia Keys was one of those, like Uh Alicia Keys was like, look, I was a tomboy who just loved the piano. Right. Like I never wore makeup. I didn't even look like a girl most of the time. Like it was just like whatever was comfortable. And I was in the studio Uh and she was like, when I started doing her, I think it was her first album that she got in the photo shoot and was extremely uncomfortable. And the way that it had set up, like she didn't have advocates there either. Mm -hmm. Like her, her manager couldn't be there or whatever. So it was just like her and the photographer and the cover, she still says in her book, she says like that, I still look at that. And I'm like, I don't even recognize that girl. I didn't recognize that girl then. That wasn't Uh the image I was trying to put out. And like that, that's just brutal. Mm-hmm. And that those were the things that we were supposed to adhere to. Right. And then we had all these other subcultures 
that were like, but not too much. And right. Like, uh-huh. It was right. like kind of breaking. I have this issue where we talk about women owning their sexuality and it's owning women owning their sexuality in the way that the porn industry wants us to own it. Right. Right. Like, like women actually aren't setting that standard. Right. And so I, I have a big issue with, we have these arousal templates that are set for us. Mm-hmm. And then we are forced to adhere to those versus us naturally and organically deciding like, this is what I want to wear. This is how I want to portray myself. Mm -hmm. This is what my sexuality looks Mm -hmm. like. And I don't think that this is just women. I've seen this in men as much as I've seen it as Mm -hmm. in women. I am just a female. And so I know that experience a little bit better, but like the arousal template is being set for us in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. that if we didn't force it probably would end up different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So arousal template is set by, you know, music, things that we're watching, ingesting kind of on media, Mm -hmm. different media platforms. It's also being influenced by family messaging Mm -hmm. how we grew up in the family. It's being influenced by whatever cultures our families are part of whether that's a religious culture, whether it's not a religious culture, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's being defined by that. Like I usually say the different tribes that our family is a part of all get a voice in that. Right. Yeah. So it could also be aunts and uncles. It could be, you know, it can be a lot of different, right. whoever is in the child's life is having an impact and it may be direct. They may be saying it out loud and very, it's very obvious the messages that we're getting, or it can be subtle. Yeah. And I mean, like our family, our parents' careers affect that, right? Like how Mm -hmm. our parents get up and get ready for the day. We're watching that. And that's how we're learning how to be men and women and to show up, right? Our parents' relationships, our parents' relationships with their friends, Mm -hmm. the, or the lack of, the lack of our parents having friends influences us. You know, what books we consume, what news outlets, like there's a Taylor Swift song that talks about sexual politics. And like, when, when you're young, you know, nothing. And she kind of talks about in that song, how people just expect young people to not understand what's happening with their body. But then there's all this other stuff that their body is being used for. Uh-huh. And Miley Cyrus has a new song out. I used to be young. I think it's called Yeah, a little heartbreaking Yeah, about who she was not maybe genuinely when she was younger and all the things that she did and was just like, yeah, like, and, and to me, it's like, yes, they are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. They are so vulnerable. And if somebody is not advocating for them, protecting them, which that would even be hard. Right. Mm -hmm. Or again, if it's a parent who may may have an interest in their success and the money that they get it, like, that's a whole different dynamic. Well, and even that idea of like protecting them, has to come from a place of like, not like it has to come from an open hand kind of perspective, right? I can't protect my child from everything. I can prepare her for some things Uh and give her some information about, well, this group believes this and this group believes this and you're going to have to reconcile that. Right. But when we make an extreme response to our kids Mm -hmm. to protect them, quote unquote, right. We're also not protecting them. Right. Right. And, or we make it that like, this is what we believe mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what anybody else believes. Right. And don't ask questions. Right. Don't question the beliefs. Right. 
this is how it is and this is best because we decided that right i mean it's really interesting we've we've touched on this in an earlier episode right in some of the spiritual deconstruction stuff but me and my husband landed in some different places Mm -hmm. and so when we talk to our child we're we're usually saying well mom believes this and dad believes this and at some point you're going to have to form your own opinions Uh right which is very different than we as a family adhere to these rules right and right we want them to be a part of our tribe Mm -hmm. but we also want to accept their individuality Mm -hmm. as people and i think that that's something and we can discuss what purity culture is and whatever that Mm -hmm. is but when it rose in the 90s it was a direct opposition to what was happening in like music and media culture and it was an extreme response right and i believe with some good intentions Mm -hmm. it was an extreme response to protect kids and it can have good intentions but anytime we're going to the extreme yes there are going to be problems absolutely absolutely And I think that that's one of the issues that we have culturally right now is we have Mm -hmm. a lot of extremes. Right. And we have a lot of people believing that if you even try to take a middle space Uh on anything, that you're giving in to the enemy, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard when you work, when you're a sex professional. Right. Because like you and I have talked about, there's like a lot of messy middle that we have to work through. Yes. And... We, we can't have a lot of black and white answers. Right. Nor, I mean, and I found this as a parent, but I think maybe being a therapist before I became a parent also informed this, mm-hmm. where me just telling my clients or me just telling my kids, well, here, here it is, and this is what you need to do, is not effective. Right. Like me sitting back, asking questions, kind of eliciting responses, maybe challenging some things, but challenging it because they're really entrenched in something or that's the messages they've got. Right. I mean, when I was doing this with my kids, like we had a lot of discussions at dinner time, right? Current news, things that happened in their life in that day, different things like that. And my husband and I would often be like, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Like, so even they were teenagers when there was a big lawsuit, I think somebody had killed somebody and they were trying to get Apple to, open or give the passcode to the phone, right? And Apple was like, we can't do that. We have privacy stuff. And so there was a lawsuit or something. And we were like, yeah, what What do we think about privacy, right? Mm-hmm. But wanted to hear what they thought, right? Like, or I read a lot of books that my kids were reading and I'd be like, what do you think of this character? What do you think about this storyline? And sometimes I never even offered what I thought. Right. I just wanted to know what they were thinking. And, you know, sometimes I might ask a question like, yeah, what about this? And they'd be like, oh yeah, I don't like that. Or, But they have to come to that conclusion. Like it's only effective when they personally are coming to a conclusion, right? right? Me telling them something, they're like, okay, that's what my mom believes. Right. And do I believe that because my mom does? Or that's what my mom wants me to believe? Right. Same with, with clients. Like if they come in saying like, I don't feel attractive. Right. I I mean, I've had some clients where I'm like, you're an attractive person. Like, I mean, generally speaking, I think you're an attractive person. I think that's a false belief, but me just saying, no, you're an attractive person. Doesn't actually do the work that they need to do on that. Right. Also, I think there's this level too, where 
in general, right? This is a general speaking kind of thing. Most humans are attractive uh-huh. to someone. To someone, right? That's right? the other thing. Like, who's defining attractive right. here? And and that's one of those beautiful places that the arousal template goes, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we're able to individuate right. our arousal template, and we don't have people force feeding us information mm-hmm. about what that's supposed to be. Humans are kind of cool like that, yeah. right? Like there's there's just we are meant to be in social settings. We are created as pack animals. Uh-huh. The reality is, and we do most of our learning through relationships. Yes. We do that. What's it called? There's a term for that, that we talk about, like not interpersonal, but it's kind of that same concept. Like most of our learning is interpersonal. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, we, we are social development creatures. Yeah. Right. It's that engagement with mm-hmm. that really has the learning. Right. Which is why we do education the way we do, right? We could give kids from, you know, the time that they learn how to read books and be like, learn this, mm-hmm. but we know that it's way more effective for us right. to have dynamic personalities and discussion, discussion and right. Like that's why book clubs are such a thing. Yes. People want to talk about what they're reading. Right. People want right. to talk about what they're watching. Right. It's why we have show phenomena. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's not because we are all individually like we like this show. It's because right. we can create community around this yeah. show. And some of that we've lost as there's been so many platforms that create shows it's so true where when we used to have you know three or four channels everybody was watching the same tv and i think that led to some level of connection because we were all watching the same things and so we were talking about the same things right and now there's so much content on so many different platforms i think that's led to or maybe contributed not led to but contributed to some of the disconnection we see in our culture right now. Right. I mean, one of the things I said this to my father-in-law several months ago, where I said, you know, we're one of the most isolated cultures in human history. And he was like, what do you mean? We're so connected. And I was like, right. We're so connected to our own ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think, again, when we're looking at arousal template, if we are funneling, right, we have all of these algorithms that funnel us to a show you would like, or Uh a, right? Like Netflix does that, Prime does that. They're all of these algorithms are set up to give you more of the stuff that you consume. Uh And it's also crafted in a way to make you come back. And so we're losing a lot of that like dialogue. We're Uh losing a lot of that like, oh wow, humanity is just kind of cool and very diverse and what is attractive to us is very different. What, right. And so it's very, and I will say we also had, I I don't know that having, you know, the media conglomerate that was controlling exactly what we were consuming was helpful either. Cause when you look at how sexuality was presented in early TV and like, I love Lucy. And I mean, it wasn't right. It wasn't. They slept in separate beds. Right. And so I think that there is a level of the messy middle where Uh we have to kind of figure out this is too much right and this is not enough right and giving people choices without creating like choice overload Uh because i also think that that's a problem within the human culture if you are trying if we're trying to be a part of a global community 
that's too hard. Uh But if we're trying to be part of this very, very niche community, that's doesn't create a lot of growth. You get kind of rebound in that. And in reality, that is what we've done with sexuality. Uh That is what we've done with the arousal template. Yeah. I mean, I think they credit the show Will and Grace for changing a lot of people's opinions about gay marriage or not that they, they didn't really tackle gay marriage, but he, they interacted with a gay character. Well, with two gay two characters. Gay characters yeah. And I mean, a lot of, you know, gay men will be like, that's not what gay men look like. But for your straight audience who didn't really know gay people, they were interacting with them in a way that felt safe and they mm-hmm. were more accepting of them. And that started to shift the attitudes to where, you know, when gay marriage started coming up in legislatures or on the ballot, people were like, yeah, I'm okay with that. I mean, I do think that there's some normalization that has to happen kind of across the board. Like we are all human. Mm -hmm. And when we start to dehumanize people in media, that becomes a problem. That is, that is a huge problem in porn. Right. It's a huge problem in the music industry. It's a huge problem in media in general. But when we start to look at and really pay attention to, these are complicated human beings. Yes. And they're they're beautiful because they're complex. Yeah. They're, there's a, we start to be more accepting, right? Mm-hmm. It's the whole Brene Brown concept of, it's hard to hate people close up. Right. And for a lot of people, when Will and Grace came out, we had also just come off of the AIDS pandemic in the Mm -hmm. 80s. And we're kind of trying to shift that narrative as a culture towards like, wait, wait a minute. These are not individual humans. Like we lost an entire group of people that we lost silently. Uh Uh-huh. And that should hurt. Right. And we need to normalize this mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, isn't scary. Right. And I mean, Will and Grace had a lot of issues. There were a lot of, it was a lot of addiction issues. Uh-huh. There were, right. And for the time period and what it was, it created some space for conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that is when it comes to arousal templates, right? Because when you and I get clients in our office, we've got a lot of junk in our yes. templates yeah. and we're trying to like sort through that and figure out like, what do we want to keep uh-huh. and what do we not want to keep right. and how much of that can be shifted. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause some parts of our arousal template can be right. And some of them can't. Right. It, so but we can learn to do it in healthier ways. Right. I and, mean, and let's be clear, like we're not talking about sexual orientation. No. That's not part of the arousal template. That's an orientation, not, a thing that's shaped or formed. And we know sometimes with females, based on experiences, they will move. Female sexuality is more fluid, right? So if they've experienced a lot of abuse by males, they may choose to be in relationships with females. Now we may say they already had a bisexual orientation to do that, but also female sexuality usually isn't as set as male sexuality. I think that we also have this issue and I'm, I'm just going to put this on the table. We never researched female sexuality in our culture, except for when it adhered to male norms Uh until very recently, like in the last 15 years, right. Is when we even started saying like, okay, what do women like 
for women, right? Um, for themselves, uh -huh. which I think would be hard to tease out, period, yeah. right? Because right. women are influenced by the patriarchal structures they're raised under and live under. And so to say, but what do you like? How do we disconnect that from yeah. what you were socialized? Right. Which is, is this like other piece that, you know, we want to get into of the like rape culture and purity culture yes. and how those like feed each other, I guess. I think that one, I will say blanket statement, our culture has created the perfect Petri dish for us to not know what our individual arousal templates are. Right. And for us to not know, like, what would that look like and what would that not? And for women, for millennia, uh -huh. our sexuality was chosen for us. Right. And a lot of it has been written out of history. And so I think that there, and I think that that's true for any sexual minorities. We have written sexual minorities out of history. And so I do think that there is a level of this where women are starting to ask those questions and it's messy. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, kind of going back to, I have an issue with us saying that this is female empowerment when it's still in a male template, like, or still in a porn template. Really. Uh -huh. Sexual empowerment comes from this kind of internal knowing and an integrated self, which is what we have to start working on. Right. And we have to start questioning what the narratives are culturally and whether we agree with them or not. Right. Like there are right. some things that like, yes, I do that because I am a female in this culture. Is it inconvenient? Yes. Uh -huh. Right. And I want to be an accepted female in this culture. Right. So I will shave my legs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's part of this, like, we have to decide for ourselves what that looks like and why. Yeah. I mean, I do think like my kids technically are all Gen Z. Yes. And my three older are more similar than my youngest. Now there's a three year difference between my third daughter and my fourth. And she kind of does, she dresses differently. She doesn't shave her legs or armpits. You know, when my daughter was getting married last year, she was like, I will shave my armpits for the wedding. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> and she's like, not because I want to, but because I don't want to get all the questions from the family. And I was like, that works. <laughs> I, she at least knew, right? Right. And it was her choice. I wasn't like, please shave your armpits. I right. was, I hadn't really, you know, I was busy doing other stuff. So when she made that announcement, I was like, okay great. Right. But she's different than the older three. Right. She dresses, she just is different. And yeah. I'm like, there is a difference between the older Gen Z. And I mean, she's not the youngest Gen Z, right? Because mm -hmm. there's still many people younger than her. But there was a shift somewhere between daughter number three and daughter number four. Yeah. And I think that that is the fascinating thing, right? We, we talk about generations. I think that there are like in 12 year chunks, uh -huh. but in our technological age in development, three years is massive. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like it's a massive change in terms of like how we, our kids have gotten information and what that looks like. And it's faster now than it has uh -huh. ever been. Right. And so 
we are seeing a lot of like cultural shifts and adaptations really fast. Uh-huh. And, and that, that is going to affect this next generation's yes. template, whether we want it to or not. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think we also, I met, I mentioned this on a podcast I was doing on spiritual deconstruction, I think, or one of the podcasts I've recently done. And, you know, some of the, the Pew study that was done in like 2015, right? I mean, they were saying if things continue the way they are, which we don't know. So let's just run a couple of different projections, right? But one of those projections were, you know, based on the younger people who are leaving organized religion, I think currently like the number of people who are Christian report being Christian on the census in, you know, 20, 2010, it would have been had it at like 56%, I want to say, if I'm remembering my numbers correct. I was reading it at the time in the podcast. So if that's what I said and it's different today, go with the old ones. But they were putting it out there like it could be, we could be looking at like 30% Mm -hmm. um, in one of the projections, right? And they're basing that kind of on this youngest, I mean, some millennials, but then also Gen Z that just are not hanging around, right? With organized religions, which again, some of them, they're pushing back and redefining their sexuality based on what they were given and have rejected. And then are trying to define it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, there, I, I don't know, there's just so many layers that kind of go into us developing a, an arousal template. And I, I always think about in Harry Potter, they make the like love potion, the little, I can't, Armententia, I think is the name of it, but it smells different to every person who smells mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Right. And in just in that one little scene where each person is kind of like describing what they smell it's to me i'm like that is a perfect cultural description yes. of arousal template yes. like these are the things that hit us personally that may not yes. for other people right there was a time magazine study done at, let's say 10 years ago right and they had these men wear like a white t-shirt they were all the same white t-shirt right but enough to get their smell, not just their cologne smell, right? But their pheromones, yeah. the, the smell that they the naturally produce, underneath right? everything. Onto the t-shirt. And then they had a group of women smell the t-shirts and rate them in order of desirability, right? And then they had like a social gathering with the males and the females. The males were not wearing the t-shirt, right? But it was a high, it was over the, over half, right? Of the women who had ranked these t-shirts in their highest ended up ranking the men that they met in the highest mm-hmm. right and they were just saying there is something to our personal experience with pheromones that kind of like goes into sexual arousal we're not even aware of that yeah right like and sexuality and sensuality are highly attached yes Right. Yes. Sexuality is really attached to us living and being in our body. Right. And experiencing the world through our five senses. Yes. Yes. So taste, touch, smell, like all of those things get pulled in uh-huh. to the arousal template. Right. And those are unconscious messages, right? right? Like that's just what we're absorbing mm-hmm. and our brain is processing. Right. Well, we go through everyday life. Yes. And, you know, again, 
it's something to be aware of. And mm -hmm. I think that part of our job as clinicians in what we do is to slow that down and kind of break it down right. one by one. Yes. Right. Like Bring some awareness and some choice. Again, yeah. they're not going to be able to choose everything, but they get, they, they can have awareness of it right. all. Well, and sometimes, and, and I, I talk about this a lot with my clients too, is like sometimes arousal is just arousal, right? Like yes. We are not, we should not give up our ability to choose based on what our body is responding to. Right. Right. Like right. we don't do that with anything else. We should not do that with sex. Right. Right. I'll use the example sometimes. Like if I'm thirsty, I take a drink of water. It, 10 minutes later, if I want another drink of water, I'm like, I, I'm not like, well, you just had a drink of water. Right. What's your problem? Like, why would you want another one? Like stop wanting a drink of water. Right. I just get a drink of water. Right. And I don't really, I'm not even aware of how often or how much time passes before I take another drink of water. I just drink water. Right. But with sexuality, somehow we're like, oh, push that down. Don't be aware of that. That's bad. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have to be aware of that because safe, sane, and consensual, right. like sexuality often involves another person uh -huh. or other relationships. And we also have to be like impulse control, right? Yes. Like, yes. Okay. Like I am aroused. Why am I aroused? And what do I want to do with that? Right. Right. Because this is the other thing that I think like Emily Nagoski does a great job and come as you are explaining, but like the arousal non-concordance, uh -huh. right. Which has been used and, and I am, I am going to shift into rape culture right now. Um, but like has been used in rape cases for decades right. of like, well, she was aroused. And so she wanted it. Right. No. Right. Right. Like female bodies arouse for just like anybody else's body aroused when you're anxious, right. when you feel like you're, you're in danger, when you feel, you know, like if you need a heightened sense of senses, right. The body physically arouses. Yes. Now there's also this great thing that the female body has created for safety, where if it is aroused for danger, it will also sexually arouse because it is safer for female bodies to be aroused right if they are forced to do something yeah. they don't want to and particularly if they were raised in a home yes where there was danger with close relationships right mm -hmm. now we may not like i mean it took me years to realize i grew up in a dangerous home mm -hmm. i don't think my siblings would call it that because i think they're still in some denial about that mm -hmm. right touch was dangerous in my home it, it either didn't happen or it was done in anger and violence. Mm -hmm. So that relationship there was formed for me. Mm -hmm. There can be that we're attracted to what's familiar to us. And in mm -hmm. that instance, that would be a bad thing. Right. Even though my body sexually might comply, you know, for safety reasons, there's more damage done if the, you know, all of the things don't kick in for female sexuality or, you know, sex to happen. I don't know if we can get too graphic or I don't know how to add an E for exploit or <laughs> explicit, 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 um, on the podcast. So I'm, if you I'm have, working around it, if you have questions, right. <laughs> <laughs> we will gladly answer those directly. Yes. I, I do think that there is a space, right? Like where we have to be very, very aware that for women specifically, for millennia, uh -huh. sex has not been consensual and it has often been violent. Right. And so, I mean, it's still- Well, is, and right? because female pleasure 
was not really right, looked at, right. right? Like we were overlooking female pleasure. Right. And we made it more female obligation or female duty. Yeah. And which, you know, like being in this field is just like tragic. Uh -huh. Think about like how long it took us to figure this out. And, and in some people, I mean, we're still working with clients yeah. who have not figured that out. Right. Like I, right. you and I say all the time, like, I never thought I would be diagramming female genitalia and teaching basic sex education right. to 40 year old women. Like, and, and, and yeah, we, we do right. Yes. And to men and talk about these, like, I didn't, I didn't know how much that would happen. Right. I didn't either. And it is one of the, again, this is one of those spaces that we have to be able to talk about like arousal is a physical response in the body. Just like when we get angry, right? Our palms may get sweaty, uh -huh. right? Like that's a physical response. That right. doesn't mean that you're going to like always punch someone right. when you're right. angry or always punch, you know, like always completely break down every time you see a sad thing. Right. But it does, it, it's our body saying, pay attention. Uh-huh. What we do with that information is our choice. Right. And that is the difference between like impulse control and following our arousal template to a default where it might get us in trouble. It might take away someone else's ability to consent or our ability to be sane, uh -huh. right? Like, because we have a choice after that. We right. have several choices after that often. Right. And recognizing that like that arousal, whatever is arousing us is a small piece of a bigger picture uh -huh. and to pay attention. Right. A couple of years ago, I had a friend who was, I think the president of an organization that is here local and like, I've chosen not to really be a member. I mean, they deal with some things that cross into what we do. Not, I mean, not for therapists necessarily. Right. And I've just kind of been like, yeah, not really my approach and I'm not going to be a part of that. But my friend was like president of the board or something like that for three years or something. And this is when the me too movement was happening. Oh yeah. And so she calls me and she's like, Jackie, I know you, you consciously intentionally are not part of this organization. Let me just tell you a little story. She's like, so I'm, I'm, we're trying to get the presentations and for their annual conference, right? She's like, we're trying to get that all set and talk about who we should have speak, who we should invite. And she's like, and you know, there's a couple men on the board. She's like, I had just mentioned, you know, with the Me Too movement, it's relative to the work that our organization is doing. We should do some presentations on the Me Too movement. And she's like, and a couple of the men were like, yes, we should totally do a presentation. We could do that. Like we could do a panel discussion, the three of us on how the Me Too movement is negatively impacting men. And she's like, so we're, we're only going to do one presentation on the Me Too movement. And I know otherwise you would never agree to come to a presentation, but like, that's the backstory. And I was like, fine, sign me up. I will come present. Right. So I was presenting on consent and like what's happening in the Me Too movement and, and why the Me Too movement is so big. Right. And yes, we can have some backlash from that where we can learn and improve. Like, yeah, it's our choice. Right. And as I'm getting ready to present, I see this 
In fact, they might've been introducing me, right? I was standing up facing the audience and a group of like 10 men who I later learned were University of Utah football players who got some school credit for coming to this, right? I mean, I thought like, oh, they must be University of Utah football players. Just looking at them came in and sat on the back row. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, I just got a little bit more nervous, right? Yeah. That's activation. And, and so I went through my presentation. I think it went fine, right? And after the fact, two of them came up and were like, that was really good. And I was like, thank you. And they were like, we learned some things. And that was just great the way that you did that. And I was like, okay, right. Okay. Like if, you know, I mean, we would say they're hyper, hyper masculine. Mm -hmm. And yet they were like, that was really informative. I really appreciated the information you were giving me. Right. I'm like, okay, we just need to do better at giving information. Yeah. Right. Like, it's not that they were like, oh, that's stupid. Like they were like, that was really good. Right. I appreciated that. Well, and I mean, like you and I work with a lot of males who really, really, really want good partnerships and yes. good relationships. Right. And we have broken that with this whole, like owning someone else's sexuality. Right. Right. Like, you can't own someone else's sexuality and have a good relationship. Yes. Like that just has not worked. We yes. know that it hasn't worked. The other thing that surprised me as a CSAT working in sex addiction, right, is when I'm talking particularly with male sex addicts, right? Mm -hmm. And talking to them about what what's most arousing to them sexually. Mm -hmm. So much of it boils down to females desiring sex. Yes. And I'm like, that's it. Like, I mean, when I step back, I'm like, that totally makes sense to me because we have made sexuality something men desire and females oblige. Right. So it totally makes sense to me why their number one sexual fantasy or their sexual, like what their template really is looking for is females who can own that they also enjoy and desire sexuality. Right. And now, if it can go a step further and they have a partner who desires them sexually, they're like, I'm good. Right. I'm an Emily Nagoski fan girl. So we're just going to, yes. I, I just think that she's brilliant and she's fun and she's quirky and she's relatable to me. Uh -huh. At least she's relatable to me. Maybe not to everybody, but you and I saw her in our presentation very recently where she's got a new book coming out in 2024, I think. Which, January. Yeah. She which announced just, on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't have Facebook. So. Right. January 2024. Rachel is waiting. <laughs> I am just like, oh, I know. I started talking to about it. <laughs> It's going to be really good. It's coming out in 2024. Yeah. Um, but in this presentation, she was talking about like, we as a society have measured sexual satisfaction by desire uh -huh. and that's not good. Right? right. And so I think that from what we got from the presentation, this entire book is about like pleasure has to be the measuring point. Yes. Right. And I think that this is another place where we really want to talk about the difference between autonomy and knowing yourself and knowing your arousal template uh -huh. and being willing to hear that from your partner. Right. And not getting in your head that like society gave us this template. And so if it's not working, right, then it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And like, okay, maybe that actually doesn't fit in our arousal template right. and we throw it out. Is this like, no one wants to have bad sex. 
Right. And a lot of people are. And a lot of people and are having really It's bad according sex. to maybe the template that society has put out. And so they, I mean, it, there are clients that I'm like, that doesn't sound like good sex. And they're like, no, it's great sex. And I'm like, it doesn't sound like good sex to me, but okay. Right. And then eventually they're like, it's not that great. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Because it should be. Right. Right. Like, and you, for partners or addicts, right? right? Like both of them, like I say that probably equally, like this does not sound like good sex. Right. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think is extremely fascinating, but like we are, we are socialized in education in every other capacity, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are told and given parameters to learn things in every other capacity, mm -hmm. except for sex. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, most states now have a sex education policy right here in Utah, it's abstinence. Yeah. I, like what are we teaching? Well, even, even in then, right. Like even if we don't formalize it and put it in the education system, because, I, and I do think that we should, right. Like uh -huh. I, I am, I am for a full consensual sex education program. Yeah. Like I, I, I believe in teaching starting. I mean, we teach our five-year-old consent, yes. right? Like yes. it's your body. You get yes. to choose. Right? Also like, like, Hey, you just walked over and took a toy. Were they done with that? Yeah. Were that's they okay not, with yeah, you taking that? Okay. Like, you like that's get... also consent, right? Right. That five-year-olds need to learn, like right. saying, can I take this crayon? Are you done with the black crayon? Right. I mean, right now, because we, we have hit the like stage of our child wants more autonomy. And so she's pushing all the boundaries mm -hmm. and she's doing that in very emotional ways where she's threatening and like sometimes throwing things and right. And we're just like, yeah, it's not appropriate to use your anger in that uh -huh. way to hurt people. So if you throw something, you lose it. Uh -huh. And if like, you've got to learn how to maintain and ask for what you need and want without hurting someone else. Right. Right. We can teach that at five. Uh -huh. If we can teach that at five, we can teach that at 20. Right. We can teach it at 18. We can teach it at 16. We can teach it right. at 10. Because consent really isn't just about sex. Right. And right. Right. It should be about all the all things. things. And then it's going to make sense that it's also sexual. Right. And this is one of those spaces, right? Where we, when we give people the information that they need to make a informed consensual decision, then we have better sex. Yes. Right. Like this whole idea of like, I just want to be desired. Well, We've also on the other side taught women that they're not allowed to desire, that they're only right. allowed to be desirable. Right. And desirable in very specific ways, but not too much and not mm -hmm. in that way. And like, right, it's just, it's right. an impossible line for women to hold in our society. And it's a really hard relational line when we're wanting to be partners. Yes. Right. Well, and, and for men, right, like, we've talked about this before, like most of their emotion is taken away from them because right. it belongs to girls. Right. Which and so they're left with sexual desire and anger. Like right. we don't like an angry woman, right? So men can be angry. They're not doing it well because they've blunted all their, or their other emotions have all been blunted for them. Right. So then everything's channeled down one of those two, right? right. And sometimes those two fuse. Yeah. And so again, when we start working on, no, you, you are entitled to all the emotions. Mm -hmm. The emotions are not gendered. You get to have all of them. 
now you can be known, mm -hmm. right? And you can know yourself yeah. and you can decide if you like yourself, right? Right. Am I desirable? Yeah. Right. You can own that. Right. And then your partner can be like, yes, I agree. Right. That's a very different approach to sex then. I need to feel something. Mm -hmm. I need to feel connected. And I only can do that sexually or in anger. And I don't really feel connected in anger. So now I need to do it sexually. Right. I feel sad. So you need to have sex with me. Like none of that leads to good sex. Right. I mean, you know, if I could boil down this entire episode into one thing that you learn, it is that colors and emotions are not gender. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but no, in reality, there it yes. And most of the time when we are funneling all of those emotions into anger or all of those emotions into sex, we're not actually getting the emotion either. Right. Like, right. Rage is what we get when we funnel everything into anger. Right. Because, and that can come out sexually. We call that eroticized rage. Right. But like, that's also where road rage comes from. Uh -huh. Right. Like if you, like, you're just not maintaining a sense of like integration. Right. You just feel really fractured. You feel out of control. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how sex feels. Right. How many times have you sat with a client where they're like, I have no control over my sexuality. The other person controls mm -hmm. that. It's like, no. Right. Right. Like you have some choices, you have some boundaries. Mm -hmm. Now there may be some abuse happening because right. we're not making choices that we need to, to keep ourselves safe. Right. But like, and abuse can happen even if you have good boundaries. I want to clarify that statement, but like, I think that this is one of those things where we break the template in and of itself because we're adhering to rules that actually have never been passed through our filter as right. like, that works for me. That doesn't. Mm -hmm. And for most women, like for most men, they learn about sex in a very male circle, right? Because we also very much gender kid play. Mm -hmm. We gender, right? Like if you look at middle schoolers, middle schoolers don't cross the lines unless they're like asking each other for a dance, right? Or something like that on a date or something. But there's more so now than I think ever, but at least when I was growing up. Right. Like the girls were here and the boys were here and like mm -hmm. it was you, you had to cross the hallway to like ask. Right. Will you go out with yeah. me? Whatever. That and is. even if you were friends with a boy that was outside of school. Right. At school, you didn't really act like friends. Right. And so there was a very, you know, we, we've drawn these very strict lines. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, when men hear from women, and when women hear from men, we get a lot more dialogue around like, actually, that's not how women think. Mm -hmm. Actually, I do feel emotion mm -hmm. and I'm mm -hmm. scared. Right. Right. We, I mean, you and I ran, I think the only, we ran it twice, the only mixed gender group that we've done at Healing Pass. Yes. And we haven't done another one, not because it didn't work. They were very successful. And the way it worked out, we had male addicts and female partners, mm -hmm. not with each other, like they were in the same coupleship with each other. Right. And it was beautiful yes. to have women say, that's not okay for your wife to be doing or for men to be like, your husband's abusive to you. Yes. You need to get out of this. Mm -hmm. And we even had some like female partners saying like, that is abusive to her. Yes. yes. And we had, you know, and we had, and we had male partners being like, let me explain addiction. Yes. Right. And it was so 
powerful. Yes. Because they were willing to take influence from each other, which you and I have said this uh-huh. consistently over our careers. In order to heal humanity, we have got to heal the relationships between the genders. Yes. Not sexually, just across the board. Yes. Right. Yes. Like we have to be able to hear what the other side, the other gender is saying uh-huh. without this like inflammatory, like women's issues. Like right. women's issues are human issues. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, again, this was, uh, was it second wave feminism that was mm-hmm. like Betty Friedan was like, the next thing we need to do is look at men and yes. kind of free them from patriarchy. Right. right? We didn't get there. Um, <laughs> But, you know, most feminists are saying what benefits women benefits men. Mm-hmm. We're not looking. And and I've heard this criticism of the Barbie movie, right? Where a lot of people are like, it was kind of a man-hating movie. Like, they just didn't care about the men at all. And I'm like, okay, so what they were doing there is completely flipping the script. So what you're telling me is the world we live in today is woman-hating. Mm-hmm. Right. And they don't listen to women at all. Right. And they're like, well, no. Okay. 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 Cause I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Right. But again, we're not trying to do like women, like when we're talking about, you know, women's issues or feminist issues, it's not like we want to be in charge and then abuse power. Right. Which I do think is what, or not all feminists want to do that. Right. I think again, extremes. Right. Right. But, most of most people as a whole everybody live in the messy middle Mm -hmm. right when we start pulling to extremes those tend to be the loudest voices of any system Mm -hmm. party community right like and that's not that's not helpful either right and i think it's good to just recognize like women want to be in relationship with their partners and men want to be in relationship with their partners. Right. And we have to be, able they to don't be, want the hierarchy. Yeah. And we need to be very clear about that partnership and like really no one, there is no reason that anybody else should be in your sexual relationship except you and the other person. Mm-hmm. And we have, to, maybe your therapist is you're working your on issues. Yes. <laughs> yes. But like, and even then we're not telling you what to do. No. And, and if your therapist is saying, this is how you do it. Right. Question that mm-hmm. because we, as it is not ethical for us as therapists to say, we, this is how you do it. We can say, I tell you, I can tell you what I mm-hmm. see. And I can or tell we you can say, my... these are some descriptors of good sex. Yes. Would you, would you apply those to your relationship or what ones would you apply and what ones wouldn't mm-hmm. you? Right. Or I can give you suggestions. I can give you thoughts and ideas. Yes. But ultimately, or I can maybe point out where I don't think it's working for you. Yeah. I can tell you what I see. Yes. Still your choice. Yeah. And I think that that's one of those things that as we're talking about the arousal template, right? We're talking about being able to show up authentically in our relationships Mm -hmm. and the way that we have develop our arousal templates in a cultural setting. We have not been able to do that individually. Right. And I think that that one has created a lot of abuse. Mm -hmm. And I think it has created a lot of uncertainty and a lot of atrophy, Mm -hmm. right? Like I know people, men and women alike who are very sexual people 
but it takes a lot for them to actually know what they're attracted to uh-huh. and what they want and what they need and where that comes from. Right. So we're not just talking about women don't want sex and men do. We're talking about this is a big complex thing that we're trying to make some sense of uh-huh. because really most people want to have and be desired by another person. Right. And sometimes that's sexual and sometimes it's not, but the things we, you and I talk about the courtship inventory, which is another part of Patrick Carnes's workbook. But I did a whole presentation a few years ago on the fact that the courtship inventory is just how we move deeper into relationships. Yes. And those can be non-sexual and sexual ways. And we are attracted to people based on our arousal template, uh-huh. non-sexually and sexually. Right. And we need to be able to know what those are and mm-hmm. why and what we do with that mm-hmm. and adhere to the for good or bad. Yeah. Right. We're attracted to people because of our sexual arousal template. And sometimes that makes us a better person and we grow and we thrive. And other times we stay small and kind of collapse in on ourselves. Yeah. Right. Or we get arrogant. Like I have clients where I'm like, it sounds like in the groups you hang out with, you're the smartest, you're the most Mm -hmm. successful, you're the most handsome or beautiful. That's not healthy, right? It's not healthy to be the best of everything in the groups we're in. Like, it's always good to have people that we look up to, that we admire, that teach us, that inspire us. Mm -hmm. That push us to not be root bound. Right. And sometimes those are people who have different ideas and different views than us, right? Like, and that's, and that's complicated because mm-hmm. those also those things also rub up against wounds, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. are also a part of our right. or have some expertise in areas that we know nothing about. Right. Right. And and it's not we don't have to pretend we know something about that. Right. We just can be inspired by their knowledge of something. Right. And we may have our own knowledge of something, but it's not that. Right. And yeah. And so like I think those are the pieces of this that are really, really important and really, really powerful as people kind of deep dive and introspect our own arousal templates and mm-hmm. what we want and what we need. And I do think that some of that also requires a lot of vulnerability with mm-hmm. the people that we are having sex with. Right. Right. Because it can be really scary to say, I want to do this because it's part of my arousal template mm-hmm. or I don't like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know that you do. Right. Or again, like I'll talk with clients about like sex really happens in the body, not mm-hmm. really in the head. Right. But sometimes the next day our brain takes over and is like, why did you do that? Why mm-hmm. did you make that sound? Why did you say that? Why did you move that way? Mm-hmm. That's not good. Right. Like <laughs> we need to be like, it's okay. Right. It's okay. Because I felt that in the moment. Right. Yeah. And we can talk ourselves out of a lot of really good sexual experiences, just living in the shame and living Mm -hmm. in that kind of space. Mm -hmm. Or that like one of my mentors would call it the leftover sex. Like, well, we're not going to do that and we're not going to do that. And that's bad. And this is bad. And like we eliminate all this stuff and then we're like, okay, this is what we're left with. Yeah. And so we just have leftover sex. Which everyone knows leftovers are never as good. Right. I don't eat leftovers. Like my husband does. Yeah. I mean, there's some leftovers, like I'll reheat soup or something like that. 
if it doesn't have meat in it. I don't re I don't reheat meat, period. I'll eat it cold before I'll reheat it, right? And my husband's always like, that's just weird. And I'm like, I don't do leftovers. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that that's a perfect example of like, and you shouldn't be ashamed for not eating right. leftovers. Right. Right. Like, right. I'm a... like, I'll make a little bit more for you. Right. And, uh, and I do think that we have the, those beliefs around like what we should and should not do about a lot of yes. things. Yes. Right. And it, it's actually not weird. Like when you start to break down, like when you start to break down the arousal template and where it comes from and where those things come from and why they show up for you, it, it starts to make a lot of sense, mm -hmm. right? Like, and, and some of this is like stuff that I've been doing personally very recently around, you know, just growth, because that's the other thing. As we grow, we become more aware of things that we mm -hmm. were never, well, as we move into therapy more or like growing internally, you know, being more introspective, we start to become aware of things, blind spots or unknowns or hidden parts of ourselves that like we didn't know were there. And right. now we're okay. Like we're willing to do that. And it's fascinating. Some of the things that like show up and you're like, Oh, uh -huh. yeah, okay. I can understand how that's attached to that. Yes. I would have never put that together, but like, that's actually a pretty direct correlation. This equals this equals mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised I haven't seen yeah. it before. I've had my therapist do that. And I'm like, how did I miss that? Like, it seems so basic. And yet I missed it, right? Because again, somehow it was normalized and I didn't really see the chain reaction here. Yeah. And so then my, my therapist says, that, I'm just like, uh, right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that right. or feel that like, wow. Okay. Well, and you have said this since I was an intern and I, I have just adopted it because you've said it so much, but like all human behavior makes sense. Yes. And the reality is like the more that I start, uh, the more that I work with people, the more that I just get to know people's story. The reality is like, it's true. Yeah. It does make a lot and of if sense. And it, if it doesn't make sense, we haven't uncovered. We need more yeah, we of the story. Yeah. Right. And so arousal templates are that way yes. too. Yes. It's just, it's just part of who we are as people. And I think that that's the thing that I want to do in my career is kind of demystify this idea of like, sex is so hard mm -hmm. or sex is so strange, complicated or I don't know what my partner yeah. wants. Well, okay. We can ask, or we can, you know, yes. like we can have conversations about that. Right. Why do I like this thing? Right. Like this yes. is the other thing. I, Cause you and I talk about this a lot in terms of like when someone comes into our office and they say, well, I just watch normal mainstream porn. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always We're like, always like, give me a little bit more. What does it mean? <laughs> I, like I, everybody likes normal, normal porn. Yeah. Everybody likes normal and mainstream porn. It always is something different. Right. Because the reality is whether we want to admit it or not, porn is a multi-billion dollar industry because it has figured out that everyone has something that hits them right right well, or everyone has wounds yes that porn can tap directly into and kind of give it the illusion of healing yes and when we start to it's and it's just that this is still fascinating to me about our career and about what we do when you start to unravel the types of things that people are doing in fantasy and pulling that thread the wounds make sense. Yes. 
right? Yep. The things that we are trying to heal make so much sense. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and it's never about the fantasy, right? The mm -hmm. fantasy is kind of, it's the bandaid, right? It's literally the bandaid that's keeping the wound from getting hit by the world right. so often, but like, it's just an old crusty bandaid and we can like take yeah. it off and actually heal yeah. the wound underneath. And, or I've had clients who kind of use analogies with different, yes. you know, I don't know how to explain it other than this and they'll use an analogy. And sometimes they're like, does that make sense? And I'm like, no, it I'm sure it does on some level. I'm not getting it yet. And we keep working and we keep working. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, oh yeah, this is this analogy. And they're like, oh, like they didn't get it either. Right. right. And I'm like, got it. Okay. Right. Yes, we right. get it. And in my practice, right, like I read a lot of nonfiction and fantasy and stuff. And if I have clients that are engaged in that world and kind of know it, like I will use those things as analogies because it's a good buffer. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Like we emotionally connect to things. We, we emotionally connect to different forms of art in ways that we don't really understand. Right. And when we start to like use that as a way to describe sexuality or the wounds, it does create some kind of like soothing buffer of like, Hey, I'm not alone in this. Like someone else thought this and experienced this enough to put it in the world and create it. And like, Oh, this is a human experience and it makes sense. Right. It makes sense. Right. And I think that that's kind of the cool part about the arousal template is yes, we are taking in tons of data that creates this template that we are then like attracted to and aroused by and move with. And all of those things in that template are attached to things that we can make sense of and mm -hmm. that we can emotionally develop and emotionally make choices on. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's just an incredibly powerful thing. And I don't know, like we've spent a lot of, and I think that this is, and maybe we don't have time to do the, the rape and, Purity culture. Purity culture. Because Rather we've have been... to get into that because you're going to have to leave. So, yeah. yeah. But like breaking out the. We oh, have wow. several other episodes lined up that we'll talk about from, but this is kind of setting maybe a foundation piece talking yes. about the sexual arousal template. Right. Because like, and maybe like demystifying the arousal template a little bit. Yes. Because I think that for a lot of people, and I think, like, I've talked to CSATs that when I start to talk to them about like, this is how I see the arousal template. Uh -huh. Like, it clicks a little bit more, right? Yeah. We are not just talking about sexual fantasy. We are not just talking about like. Right. Because behind the fantasy is a story. Yes. Or a wound that then the, like you said, the fantasy is the bandaid, right? Right. Or it's the opposite of the wound. It's what they desired or needed. Mm -hmm. And so again, if you just take the fantasy on face value, you're not getting everything you need to out of it to help your client. Yeah. And I, and I, again, this is one of those spaces where I think it is really important to understand there is no shame in this, right? There may be cultural norms and taboos around it that we need to like work through and mm -hmm. talk around about and create boundaries around, but this is just how we developed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as CSATs, we have access to a couple of assessments, right? The sexual dependency inventory, which is very in-depth. Yes. The PTSIR um, assessment that I'll also give to partners 
um, because it's not addiction specific. It's um, um, trauma specific. Yeah. And, you know, the SDI, again, as a CSAT supervisor, that's one of the main things I'm working with the candidates on is understanding this. And I wouldn't necessarily say outside of the therapy world that I would be great with assessments, right? right. I did get an A in my statistics class though. But to me, when I'm going through the SDI with a client, it's helpful. I usually give them at the same time. And if I don't give them at the same time for financial costs or something like that, I have a good idea of some of their trauma and how it organized, which is what the PTSIR is telling me. Yes. So we can look at here's this behavior and here's this trauma story. And don't you see like, of course, right. of course, this is how this is manifesting. Right. And they're kind of like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, let's get curious about this because it makes sense. And the more we start understanding the trauma, we're like, of course, mm -hmm. this is happening. Right. Like when I sit down with a client, well, usually before I sit down with a client, I'm sitting down myself and going through their SDI, which is lengthy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, of course, oh, of course. I always like, I tell, you know, CSAT candidates, like, I don't want to be, I mean, I don't want to be surprised. If I've done a good job as a therapist attuning to this client, I have a feel for how their SDI is going to come out. Right. Now there might be more details that they haven't given me yet. Almost always there's details always. they haven't given me yeah, yet because it's always, so in depth but, yeah. and there's no way I can ask all these questions. So there's always more information or more details, but I'm not surprised because I've gotten to know and understand this client, this human being. Right. Right. And right. And it, again, I, I think that this is one of those things where we do a really bad job in our culture of normalizing sex, uh -huh. right? Sex is as integrated in our culture as clothes and families and children and the types of food we eat, right? Like it is, it's literally, it's, it's a foundational piece of our culture uh -huh. and yet we don't, do a good job of destigmatizing that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times we haven't had these conversations with people, mm -hmm. right? Like these are not dinner table conversations that most people have. These I mean, are they not, are sometimes at our family. I mean, yeah, me too. <laughs> and but, I'm like, know. okay, kids, let's, let's find a different topic tonight. Um, we have guests, please <laughs> let's find a different topic. And sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't. I was about to say, and I can see your kids being like, mom, <laughs> right. we get this. It's fun. But I have noticed, right, like as I have gotten more comfortable and integrated in my own life and gotten more comfortable as a therapist and kind of these big ideas, these big theories, I guess, of like how we put all of this together, I am more comfortable talking to people about it and the way like in my everyday life, because that's the other piece, right? Like I do this professionally, we do this professionally, but it can be very different when you're doing it professionally. Uh -huh. about other people yes. and their lives. And then like Personally. having a conversation over coffee. And I think those, like, if we could get to a place culturally where we're having those conversations over coffee more, mm -hmm. we would be able to integrate our arousal templates a lot faster. Yes. And a lot more in ways that are more authentic to us. Yes. Because a, it normalizes in that conversation and 
with safe people. It normalizes uh-huh. in that conversation. That's the other thing. The other person has to be safe enough. Because I've had that experience as a CSAT with women who aren't even therapists, yeah. right? This was in my old neighborhood and we're going out for breakfast or we're going out for lunch and they start talking about sex. And they, I think, felt like they were very progressive in talking about sex the way they were. And I just didn't say anything. Because first of all, just the fact that I'm a CSAT and I specialize in this is making them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to judge them. I kind of judged them, right? Because I'm like, the whole way we're talking about sex is defined by patriarchy. And it's not necessarily, it doesn't feel really vulnerable Mm -hmm. or genuine or authentic to the self, right? Right. Like, and so I just ate and listened and didn't say anything because that would make it worse. And I'd never get invited again which eventually happened. (laughs) Yeah. But when you can, right? Like when you can find people who have done enough of their own work that they're asking those questions, Uh like this is where some of the healing starts too. And I think that's why we do the groups that we, the way we do Uh at our office is we are building relationships and teaching people to have these deep conversations safely. Yes. I think all of the work that we try to do at Healing Paths is like our clients are learning about relationships because that's how we approach the work yeah. in a relational way. Yeah. And so, right. Like I do think this is big and scary in a lot of ways because we've been taught that it's big and scary, mm-hmm. but the reality is it's just a part of us that we have mm-hmm. to explore. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just a new adventure. Yeah. And sometimes very, very hard, right? Like sometimes it's a very hard adventure and sometimes we get into some very deep, spaces. And if we do that with support, it is possible and it's really mm-hmm. cool work. Yes. For partners and addicts. Yes. Right? I mean, like this is just, yes. this is a human this thing. This is human. Yeah. This is a human thing. Yeah. They don't have to be addicts. They don't have to be partners. Like this is just a human thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just wanted to verify that before we end. So we'll wrap up there and then we'll continue to the discussion in October. Sounds great. Okay. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.